0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number forty-two of the Right Take. I'm Eric Lindrum. I'm Jacob Grandstaff, and we've got quite a bit of good news on this particular podcast. We've got hopeful news about a possible bright future for the American right. We've got some very good news about how, yes, cancel culture does work for the right if we know how to use it properly. And of course, we do also have some more serious updates on the front of perhaps the most crucial issue of our time, which is still and always has been immigration. But before we get to the main topic, we've got to start off with a bit of a breaking news update, if you will. At the time of recording, this came out yesterday, October 22nd. We talked previously, of course, about how Attorney General Merrick Garland has basically sicked the FBI and the DOJ on parents who dare to protest school boards, because apparently you're not allowed to criticize school boards anymore for pushing you know, transgender policies and critical race theory and stuff like that in their, in their schools and their curriculum and in the, in their bathroom policies. And the FBI basically said, and the DOJ said, we're gonna start considering these people domestic terrorists and we're gonna conduct surveillance on them. We're gonna buzz them with police helicopters. We're gonna use SWAT teams to arrest them if they dare to speak up about you know, a trans student raping a girl. And a lot of this arguably started. When the National School Boards Association, the NSBA, sent a letter to the Biden administration in late September demanding that these parents be labeled as, quote, domestic terrorists. Without citing any evidence, of course, they claimed that "oh these parents are threatening us, their harassment and threats of violence and intimidation. And they basically and the Biden administration basically answered the beck and call of the NSBA. And now a memorandum has been issued by the NSBA. To NSBA members from the NSBA Board of Directors, dated October 22nd, 2021, message to NSBA members. Quote, as you all know, there has been extensive media and other attention recently around our letter to President Biden regarding threats and acts of violence against school board members. And quote. They're still they're still going for that line of like, oh, it's violence. Quote, we wanted to write you directly to address this matter on behalf of NSBA. And this part is underlined. We regret and apologize for the letter. To be clear, the safety of school board members, other public public school officials and educators and students is our top priority, and there remains important work to be done on this issue. However, there was no justification for some of the language included in the letter. We should have had a better process in place to allow for consultation on a communication of this significance. We apologize also for the strain and stress this situation, great alliteration there, has caused you and your organizations. We are going to do better going forward. We are engaged in a underlined formal review of our processes and procedures. We will announce underlined specific improvements soon to ensure there is improved coordination and consultation among our staff, our board, and our members across the country. The review will include will include not only the proceedings leading to the letter, but also other related concerns raised by members before the letter was sent. We will have more sh- to share with you soon as our review continues. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to contact us. Thank you. So what does this mate. Check and mate. You guys are done. So all it took was outrage which is what was caught co- what this caused. of course it was widespread outrage they caused even more protests parents started carrying signs saying we are not domestic terrorists we are not you know parents you know concerned parents are not terrorists which is true it was almost like the Streisand effect they tried to bury it and it got even worse because they tried to bury it and they tried to say like you know we, we got to clamp down on these people well guess what when you try to clamp down hard enough they're only going to lash out even more and it worked And it was covered in Fox, it was covered in right-wing media, and now they have been forced to back down. Especially when an investigation by a watchdog group revealed emails confirming the NSBA was colluding, dare I say, use the word collusion, with the Biden administration to basically write this letter before the letter was released. So that the special interest groups using their puppet strings on the administration and on Biden himself was exposed. And they, once you shine a little bit of light on them, like cockroaches, they run scattering. So... This is good. This is proof that we absolutely can put pressure on them when we start attacking and attacking and attacking and get them on defense. And you're seeing this in, for example, the Virginia governor's race where Glenn Youngkin is absolutely on offense with critical race theory. He's talking all about critical race theory and education. And McAuliffe is constantly on defense, as are the Democrats on behalf of McAuliffe and on behalf of Biden.
1: Well, this is what progressives always do. Anytime that they're emboldened, they always overreact. They always overstep their bounds. They always push above and beyond what the limit is, because they're ultimately totalitarians. They want to create a totalitarian society in which you cannot be anything but a progressive. They want that type of of Soviet oppression on their political enemies, and they will always do what is politically expedient. But whenever you have a catalyst like the George Floyd riots, and all the corporations are behind the BLM movement, they look at that as their opportunity to finally take over American society. Because if you look at the way progressivism has progressed throughout the decades, it's been incrementalism. Like in 2010, America was the society that progressives wanted in 1970. But when the George Floyd riots happened, they're like, Hey, we don't have to wait till 2050 to get to 2050. We can get there next year. If we can go ahead and put the pedal to the metal. And what this is, is this was basically, you know, high class Antifa. These are basically high class Antifa operatives who sent this letter who supported this letter because this is a form of anarcho-tyranny because in their minds we have now – Antifa has taken over the government. Antifa has captured the federal government. So rather than having to get – because last year what was happening is they were sending mobs to people's houses to intimidate them. So they're thinking, well, we don't have to do that anymore. We don't have to get street operatives and the homeless to get out there and you know harangue people in their homes. We can just get the DOJ to do it. And so this is, this is a classic example of them overstepping. The PR in this Loudoun County – Rape case, this was a PR nightmare for them because the very guy who was the catalyst for them sending this letter it turns out his daughter was raped at school. his 14 year old daughter was raped at school. He had a justification for being angry. And so this is a complete PR nightmare for them. Then you know, this is something that and here's the thing. you know, conservatives shouldn't accept this. They shouldn't just say, "Okay, they apologized, all is forgiven."
0: Mean to keep kicking them while they're down.
1: Because you have to understand, this is something that conservatives, uh, some of them, are just finally starting to come around to. You can't appeal to progressives' better angels because Because they have none. Well, to them, progressivism is the exhibition of their better angels. It's not a political. It's not a political crusade in their minds. It's a moral crusade. Progressivism is morality to them. It is their religion. It is their their ethical framework. So you can't really appeal to their better angels because it's their better angels have essentially been co-opted to promote progressivism. So there's nothing to appeal to. You you can't convert people like that. You have to defeat them. And so in a situation like this… Conservatives don't need to stop. They don't need to say, "Okay, we forced an apology. Cancel culture worked for us. So let's just go back to life as normal. No, no, no. You need to root these people out, find out who supported the letter, find out who penned the letter, and you need to push until they are fired, forced to retire. And this has actually been happening across school boards in the United States. There's been a lot of school board members who just quit. They just – they got tired of all of the harassment. They got tired of all the protests. They just walked away. Same with teachers. A lot of teachers who have been pushing the critical race theory, they've just they've just given up. They've gone home. They figure, you know what? I'll be an activist in another area because the thing is these school board members and these teachers that are pushing this stuff, they aren't school board members and teachers. They are activists. They're social activists who have infiltrated institutions specifically to take those – institutions. in this case, the school system – the education system to promote their progressive ideology which is a an offshoot, an offshoot of marxism so yeah you can't appeal you can't stop when they're down you have to you have to keep kicking you have to keep punching you have to keep pushing you have to keep driving until they finally completely surrender and you've completely taken over that institution so a lot of people wonder okay well how did we get to the point where you have revolutionaries basically revolutionary activists who are in these positions of authority and are pushing stuff that would just be absurd 10 years ago like even liberals 10 years ago wouldn't support this stuff they would they would oppose they would vigorously oppose this stuff the reason for this is yes there is an element of indoctrination a lot of younger liberals have come through the university system and have been indoctrinated to believe this stuff they genuinely believe America is racist and I'm reminded of this every time I happen to go into DC. As an example, yesterday, so just north of Dupont Circle, there's this uh, this woman, this uh, this white woman, who's walking across the crosswalk, and she's got on her purse, it says 7, uh, July 4th, 1776, with a with an X across that date, and oh, underneath it, it has whatever date in 1619 19. that the first African slave was brought to Virginia. And so the implication being the founding wasn't July 4th, 1776. The founding of the country was when the first African slave was brought here. And of course, this is a white woman. This is an example of the indoctrination working. So there are a lot of genuine people who are genuine converts to this ideology. The vast majority of voters who voted for Joe Biden, though, don't support this stuff because they don't know what it is. They haven't been presented with the option, do you support critical race theory or do you not support critical race theory? Most of them wouldn't be able to define it if you asked them what it is, and in fact, most of them would probably respond who have heard of it would say, well, that's just a Republican talking point. That's a that's a right-wing. It's a made-up. It's it's mythology. There's As no Terry such McCaul-
0: thing. As Terry McAuliffe keeps saying, it's a dog whistle. It's a racist dog whistle.
1: Yeah, and just like Joe Biden was able to say that the whole Hunter Biden laptop story was just Russian misinformation because his voters genuinely believe that. And for the rest of us who have actually been paying attention to the news and mm-hmm. watch something other than CNN, we're thinking – he just lost the election. How is he able to do that? But no, but no, that didn't cost him the election because most of the people who were going to vote for him anyway, they don't read the New York Post. And so,
0: also when he said Antifa is just an idea. Yeah, an idea that burned down half of America and murdered Trump supporters in the streets. Oh, it's just an idea. And most of his voters believe
1: that. But see, most of his voters aren't aware that of the extent of the of the pillage of the the killings of the burning of the looting because they didn't see any of they
0: it. were peaceful protests because CNN said so
1: exactly and if you if you don't believe me if you think that I'm I'm just trying to cope with the fact that the country has moved to the left I'm just trying to cope and say well yeah if you if you parse out the data in these polls it's actually a slight majority that's with us when we're actually losing if you think that I'm just trying to be hopeful and optimistic. Let me present to you our Attorney General Merrick Garland. So Merrick Garland is the pinnacle of the boomer liberal. You know, imagine every single white liberal around Arlington County like Merrick Garland is what they would hope he is—the pinnacle of success that they would look at. And say that's kind of the, what I would as- aspire my kids to be. So get this—he was called before Congress. This is uh, this was a couple of days ago, and he was asked about two particular issues that have been all over the news—at least you know, all over conservative. News outlets, and this shows how our news is is so divided between ideology. You know, people don't watch the same news, they don't read the same newspapers. But th- these are stories that most conservatives have heard about and heard about multiple times. The Attorney General of the United States, listen to his ignorance on these issues.
0: And we're playing this video at one point two five speed just for reference because it is a fairly long video cut.
2: Attorney General Garland, do you know where Broad Run High School is? Do you know where Broad Run High School is?
0: And his mic isn't on, so uh, they didn't turn his mic on, but he, you can see him, like, shaking his head and mouthing the word no.
2: Ashburn, Virginia, in Loudoun County, Virginia. Do you know why I care? Because I'm a graduate of Loudoun Valley High School. Despite my family having Texas roots back to the 1850s, I grew up in Loudoun. It was my home.
0: And that's Congressman Chip Chip Roy, by the way, who's uh, grilling him. Doing a fantastic job, by the way, as you're about to hear.
2: October 6th, a mere 15 days ago, inside Broad Run High School in Loudoun County, Virginia, a young girl was sexually assaulted. Attorney General Garland, are you aware? Because Loudoun County prosecutors confirmed that the boy who assaulted this young girl in Broad Run High School is the same boy who wore a skirt and went into a girl's bathroom, sodomized and raped a 14-year-old girl in a different Loudoun County High School on May 28th. Are you aware of those facts? The, the boy was, are you aware firmly, are you, sorry, are my, you aware yeah. further, the boy insurers, was arrested and charged for the first assault in July but released from juvenile detention?
3: This sounds like a state case and I'm not familiar with it. I'm sorry
2: you agree with Loudoun parents You said it is not okay to allow a child that has been charged with a rape to go back into a school in that public school system?
3: Again, I don't know any of the facts of this case, but, uh, but uh, the way you put it, it certainly sounds like I would agree with you, but I don't know the facts of the case.
2: Is the FBI or the Department of Justice investigating the Loudoun School Board for violating civil rights or under authority of, say, the Violence Against Women Act?
3: Uh, I don't believe so, but I don't know the answer to that.
2: I'd ask why not, because on June 22nd at a school board meeting in Loudon County, Virginia, the Superintendent Scott Ziegler declared in front of the father of the girl who had been raped that the predator, transgender student, or person simply does not exist. And that to his knowledge, we don't have any records of assault occurring in our restrooms. When this statement bothered the father of the girl, I'm a father of a daughter, I believe you are too, sir. The girl who had been raped, sodomized, in the bathroom of a high school by a dude wearing a skirt, that father reacted. Now that father reacted by simply using a derogatory word. Would that statement have bothered you if your daughter had been raped, if somebody said that it didn't
3: occur? Again, I I don't know anything about the facts of this case, but derogatory words are not what my memorandum is about.
2: Well, the victim's mother is heard on a cell phone video telling the crowd what happened. My child was raped at school, she said. Behind her, the victim's father is seen being arrested, bloodied. This man, this arrest of a 48-year-old plumber, became the poster boy for the new domestic terrorism, the Biden administration, the administration in which you serve, has concocted to destroy anyone who gets in the way. As the ranking member said, the National School Boards Association wrote a letter to the president citing Smith's case. We all know this to be true. Attorney General, do you believe that a father attending a meeting, exercising his First Amendment rights, and, yes, getting angry about whatever lies are being told about his daughter being raped in the school he sent her to be educated in, that this is domestic terrorism? Yes or no?
3: No, I do not think that parents getting angry at school boards, for whatever reason, constitute domestic terrorism. It's not even a close question. To be
2: clear, even if there's a threat of violence, Do you believe that it is domestic terrorism that the FBI has the power to target American citizens in local disputes because a father gets mad? Now, I'm not saying Mr. Smith did that. In fact, he didn't. I can tell you how I sure as hell would have reacted. Mr. Smith should be given a medal for his calm to be able to hold back his anger. Are you aware that Loudoun County failed to report this sexual assault according to state law? And are you investigating this?
3: Again, I'm sorry. I don't know anything
0: about this case. So notice, first off, bravo to Congressman Roy there. But the weas- the way he's weaseling around this, he just keeps uh, – when asked, like, wouldn't you be upset if your daughter was raped and they said that didn't happen? He keeps deferring, oh, I don't know anything about the case. It's a state case. It's a state case. Oh, but it wasn't a state case when you know your FBI – when your DOJ decided to work with the FBI to – label these people as domestic terrorists for school board meetings in Virginia. You know, that that well. apparently wasn't a state case that you made that a federal case.
1: So but, one of the things that Roy points out is he is asking him, are you investigating this as a potential Title IX violation? Are you investigating the school board or whatever? Because the reason why he's asking that is because what hap- What happens every time there's a race hoax, a racist hoax in a the school?
0: They send the FBI they send in to the investigate. FBI. Yeah, yep. yeah, there's a that civil with rights the-
1: violation. And, and in fact, uh, in this uh, during the session, Garland actually brags about having increased, uh, I think, nearly doubled. The workforce in the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department. That's just to, what. We,
0: that's what we needed. Yeah, yeah
1: it's exactly what we needed. We need to investigate all of the white
0: supremacists who are, you the, know, the noose is being hung in NASCAR garages. You know. So they,
1: they'll send 17 FBI agents to go investigate that. They'll spend you know countless hours and you know hundreds of thousands of taxpayers' money on that. The reason why the federal government has not investigated this issue in Loudoun County, the reason why the attorney general hasn't even heard of it, is because it's not on the radar of progressive activists. The right does not have an activist wing like progressives do. So there are literally tens of thousands of progressive activists, many of whom are professional community organizers, professional activists, that all they do is try to root out alleged cases of racism. And of course, whenever you got that much of a, whenever you got that large of an army of online activists, of not even online activists, many of just community organizers, a la Barack Obama, whose entire goal in life is to make life miserable for quote unquote racists, then obviously the Department of Justice is going to be notified every time that there is any 16-year-old white kid anywhere who uses a derogatory racial slur against a black person. Of course, they're going to send the full power and force of the federal government on that. And you can imagine if this had been a white kid who had raped a 14-year-old black girl, Mm -hmm. do you you really think that Merrick Garland wouldn't have heard of it? And the thing is, I believe Merrick Garland when he says that he has no knowledge of this case because you got to remember this is the thing that a lot of people mistake when it comes to liberals in government. They assume that they all read the same news we can't because we have the Internet. We all have access to the same news sources. But the average teenager is going to be more – who wants to be informed can be more informed than, say, the attorney general just because he's more Internet savvy. The, The attorney general is an older man who honestly should be retired. I mean most of these people in government should have retired 10 years ago. They're in their 70s. Some of them are in their 80s. They don't have any business being in this position. Their faculties aren't all there. Same goes for
0: Congress, for that matter. This it, is a chair. This is, by the way, this is in a hearing at the House Judiciary Committee, whose chairman is Jerry Nadler, who's like 100 years old.
1: Exactly. Yeah. They don't have. He fell
0: asleep at the meeting. <laughs> There's actually a video that Lauren Boebert filmed of Nadler sleeping with his mask on, like, you know, lunched over, just like.
1: <laughs> oh, I believe it. But the thing is, if we, you know, the right, you know, attacks these people, these old people who are in government as villains. The reality is these people aren't running anything. Else. Joe Biden doesn't run anything. It's the it's the millennials who are behind these people who are running the government. It's the, the speech writers Xers behind. The, yeah, they're the speech the, writers. the Chiefs of staff. They're the writers who you know who craft the legislation. They're the activists who the the lobbyists. They are the ones who are running this stuff. Merrick Garland, he's just an old suit. He's sitting there, he can barely He can't. He's fumbling with his mic. He barely, you know, knows how to use this technology. He does. These people are old. It's the same way with the Mueller case. Like people were attacking. Robert Robert Mueller is suddenly this villain, this mastermind, and he goes before Congress, and it turns out
0: he's a babbling, stuttering mess.
1: It turns out he doesn't even know what's in the report that he allegedly wrote, which is because he didn't write it. None of these people write any of the stuff that goes out under their name. So. When Garland says that he hasn't – he doesn't have any knowledge that he says it sounds like a state case, uh, I heard it best described this way when it comes to Republicans in the D.C. suburbs, especially in northern Virginia, is the reason why this area has turned so strongly blue is because Republicans to these people are ambassadors from Mars. And what I mean by that is you take somebody like Merrick Garland, you know, a professional who is at the pinnacle of his career – and he sees these Republicans, these right wingers, waving their arms and screaming on the street. This girl was raped. This fourteen-year-old girl was raped. You're not doing anything about it. Why aren't you doing anything about it? And he's like, "Huh? That's a that's a local police matter. There's there's thousands of people who are raped every month in this country. It's a big country. Why are you pestering me with this this local matter? Go talk to the sheriff. I don't." I don't have any control over that. I'm, I'm late to a. You know, I'm, I'm going out to get brunch. I, you know, stop, stop bothering me. I, I've got an important meeting. You know, why are you pestering me with this? And this is the mentality. These people, their standard of living is so much higher than the rest of the country, that they can't figure out why the rest of the country is unhappy. And it's like Obama, and during a campaign speech in Florida in 2018, he said, "You know what's what's weird? Re- what's weird about right wingers is even when they win elections, they're still unhappy." Like when we win elections, we're we're glad we won. We're happy when right wingers win. They're still unhappy. Well, the reason is because when we elect Republicans, Republicans they don't do anything, don't do anything. So obviously the people are staying perpetually unhappy. But in a case like this, where you've got a, a rape in a school district that would not have happened if it weren't for the transgender policy that Merrick Garland's DOJ supports, then it is an issue for the federal government, and especially in a case where the school district tried to – or the school they tried to cover it up. it up. Yeah,
0: like again, that, you said before, imagine if it had been a white boy raping a black girl. It would be all over the case, especially imagine if the school had covered it up, this, had covered up for a white student. This then. is
1: definitely a Title IX case, but because conservatives don't – I mean they're finally starting to wake up that you're going to have to become mm-hmm. an activist if you actually want the government to work for you. Because they're not primed in this culture, this activist culture, they don't really have any channels – To send this information to the DOJ, I think they just assume, well, of course, the attorney general knows about it. He's just ignoring it because he doesn't have any sympathy for. A conservative dad whose daughter is raped. No, the, like most liberals, they're completely clueless about this stuff.
0: I mean, to be fair, he probably doesn't have sympathy for the guy anyway. No, but I, that's I disagree. I,
1: th- I think he completely. I think if he knew the facts of the case, he would. He would be one hundred percent behind. Mr. Knowing Smith.
0: that uh, again, at the heart of this is the transgender policy. They're yeah. Like, oh, I mean, even even the, so,
1: but here's the thing: most liberals. I don't think that, like I mentioned the last, the previous episode when we discussed this, I don't think most liberals have actually thought through the transgender stuff in their mind. They're th- they literally believe the propaganda they're being fed. They believe that youth who identify as transgenders are being murdered. They're being bullied in school. They're being beaten up. Elizabeth
0: Warren says there's like a record high number of black trans mm-hmm. women being murdered. But they
1: believe that. They believe they're being driven to suicide. So in their mind, you know, if it saves a life, if it stops a teenager from committing suicide, let them use the bathroom of their choice. It's not a big deal. Move on. Let's focus on education. Don't worry about it. Let's be nice to everybody and be kind. And then when they see right-wingers pitching a fit about it. It's like, what is wrong with these people? Why are they why do they have to make such a big deal about everything? Something that's this this, you know, inconsequential. Like I've talked to the liberals around here before and they're like, this is back at the height of the whole transgender bathroom thing, like 2017. They're like, I, I, let's don't focus on this. This stuff is such a distraction. Let's just focus on economic growth. Let's focus on all lower. And this was funny. Most of them are fiscal conservatives. They're like, let's focus on lowering taxes, lowering regulations. Don't worry about all that uh, that social, uh, all those social issues. But because they're in a bubble, in a media bubble, they're not presented with the facts. The media curates the information that they're allowed to see. They don't see stuff like this because you know, a transgender kid rapes a girl in a bathroom. That's, that has the potential to move the needle. On transgender issues, 15 to 25 points Mm -hmm. that can flip that issue on its head rather than it being 45 to 50 percent of the country that supports this kind of stuff that can drop very quickly down to 25 percent, even 20 percent if the facts are known. But because the media purposely does not allow their the, the leftist voters, the liberal voters to to learn the facts, then you have a situation like this. But this isn't the worst of it. Get a load of this. This is also Merrick Garland in the same hearing.
0: And this is him getting grilled by uh, Florida Congressman Greg Stubbe, again on 1.25 speed.
4: Uh, The chair now recognizes Mr. Stubbe from Florida for five minutes. Thank you, Madam Chairman. Attorney General Garland, in your Senate confirmation hearing, you referred to the January 6th protests as the, and I quote, most dangerous threat to democracy in your law enforcement and judicial career. In that same hearing, you even compared January 6th to the Oklahoma City bombing case you worked on where 168 people were killed. In June 15th, a speech announcing a new enhanced domestic terrorism policy, you cited January 6th as a motivation for that new policy. You went on to describe January 6th, and I quote, as an assault on a mainstay of our democratic system. You have said that prosecuting extremist attacks on our democratic institution remains central to the mission of the Department of Justice. So suffice it to say, it's clear that you feel very strongly about using the full force of your position to prosecute those involved in the January 6th protests. What is not clear, however, is if you will use the same force against violent left-wing domestic terrorists Just last week, on October 14th, a group of extremist, environmental, and indigenous protesters forced their way into the Department of Interior. They fought with and injured security and police officers, sending some of those officers to the hospital. The extremists violently pushed their way into a restricted government building in an attempt to thwart the work of the Department of Interior. Police arrested at least 55 protesters on site, but others got away. Mr. Garland, do you believe that these environmental extremists who forced their way into the Department of Interior are also domestic terrorists?
3: So I'm not going to be able to reference that specific incident since this is the first I know about it, but I will say that
0: (laughs) – got to say I'm sorry. There is no way – even I knew about that. No, I I,
1: I believe him. I believe he had no clue. Nobody told
0: him. There's no way that you don't hear about a breach on a federal building in the heart of D.C. of blocks from the White
1: House. There's no way he could have heard about it because the people who would be there to inform him about it have an agenda, and their agenda is to make sure that he's kept – that this boomer AG is kept in the dark about this stuff.
3: Department does not care. So this
4: is the first that you know about an incident where protesters forced themselves into a federal government building right here in D.C. Like you didn't hear so about this at all.
3: This particular example, it doesn't mean the Justice Department doesn't know about it, but I personally have heard Oh, they heard know about it. About it. Oh, okay, it.
0: So, all right, you're, you're right. I am proven wrong.
3: What you're saying right now. But I want to be clear, we don't care whether the violence comes from the left or from the right or from the middle or from up or from down. We will prosecute violations of the law according to the statutes and facts that we have. Uh, this is a nonpartisan determination of how to do
0: that. I I don't care if this part comes from the left or the right or the up or the down. I I Jacob, we should start identifying as radical center upists. Honestly, <laughs> I, I wasn't aware that up and down were political positions. So that, that isn't
1: that what most of the people around D.C. are radical, radically centrist upists. Oh, or, absolutely, or uppity,
0: the, uppity ups, uppity ups climbing up the ladder. No, oh, but again this is, and I do again this this brings back to why I want to push back a little bit because obviously he references how Garland. Granted, not to the same extent as Joe Biden, but he is constantly talking about January 6th is the worst thing ever. It's the worst thing since the Oklahoma City bombing Timothy McVeigh. Ah, Like, I do think Garland is dangerous. I think he's a radical. If nothing else, keep in mind, what was this guy most famous for prior to being AG? He was a failed Supreme Court nominee. The Republicans in the Senate under Mitch McConnell held up his nomination for a year, and he got denied after Obama – after, of course, Hillary lost in 2016. His seat was instead filled by Neil Gorsuch. So I do believe, the moment I heard he was going to be AG, I said, watch out for this guy. If nothing else, he's got a bone to pick with the right. He's got a bone to pick with Republicans over not being a Supreme Court justice. He'd be on the Supreme Court right now otherwise, and no term limits, nothing. And he's going to use this power when he can. There's and I've seen the videos, and they're in the Department of Interior. They're shoving the cops down. They're storming through the building, through the doors into the lobby. I, I do think he is dangerous, and I get what you're saying, that he is oblivious. Again, he doesn't even know how to operate a mic at these hearings, but – I don't think we should completely dismiss him as completely oblivious. Right,
4: I'll make it a little clearer for you. And we're all, most of us are lawyers here, so we use evidence in court. So you got two pictures here. One picture is from January 6th of individuals forcing themselves into the Capitol. This other picture is extremists forcing themselves into the Interior Department. So looking at these pictures, and I know you say you're not aware of this, which... Blows my mind that you're not aware of uh, violent extremists forcing their way into a department right here in washington dc into a federal building but just with these evidence with these two pictures that you see here of people forcing themselves into a federal building would you call both of both of these acts domestic terrorism
3: look i'm not going to comment about particular matters I'm, it, this is a matter that i'm not asking inv- to, to, well, you to are, comment on you... a
4: particular ma- i'm asking you to comment on these two photos you have two pictures of individuals forcing themselves into a government building right here in washington dc and one you very as i laid out very welcomely call them domestic terrorists, but you're refusing to call groups like this who commit the same atrocities here in Washington, DC, domestic terrorists.
3: One I know the facts of, the other I don't know the facts of. Um,
4: well, I'm tell- I'm showing you pictures. Here's facts right here. If, if you want to, we'll, we'll act like we're in a courtroom. Exhibit A, exhibit B, January 6th, Department of Interior well, as you know, based on these pictures of one, people forcing themselves into one, the one
3: picture' is not going to be able, I'm not going to be able to resolve a legal determination based on one picture in the January sixth case we have terabytes of video which disclose exactly what happened
0: speaker there. oh video terabytes of video like the video of the capitol police officers and guards. Opening the doors and letting the January 6 protesters in, but he's, those
1: videos, it he's making it sound like there is no video of the storming of the Interior Department. They
0: filmed it themselves. The protesters did. They yeah, posted it on Snapchat, thing, they, they'll TikTok. Stream,
1: they'll stream their their crime and post it on Instagram or post it on any social number of social media platforms. But you got to remember, he, he as old as he is, as out of touch as he is he hasn't even heard of this he doesn't have any idea what's going on and his mind and this is the mind of most liberals they're presented with facts by the right of what's going on in the country of why the right is angry of why the right believes what it does and they simply don't believe it because here's an example let's let's imagine for instance that that you didn't hear about 911 911 occurs you don't have you're living in Kansas and none of the news media has reported on it the Twin Towers are down. They're living on with
0: no TV, no radio. Well, even
1: if you have a TV and radio, you follow the news, but none of the news outlets that you follow have talked about the, these Twin Towers falling down. And finally, it becomes so important that they have to mention it, but they just mentioned there was an accident, a plane, a couple of planes accidentally crashed into the towers. They fell down. There were a few people who died and they move on. And they don't talk about it. And then you're confronted by people who are mourning, who are you know sad, who are angry, and you can't figure out. What are you so upset at Muslims for at at Al Qaeda? I mean, it was a, it was an accident. A couple of planes flew into the World Trade Center. There were a few people who died. A few people who got injured. Why are you making such a big deal about this? And they, they're hysterically angry at you, trying to explain. No, three thousand people died. You know, this happened, and everything. And they show you pictures, and you don't believe the pictures. It was like,
0: intentional. Like there were more plane crashes that day. Yeah, you
1: don't. You don't believe them. You look at the pictures. Like okay, well, it looks like you. That's photoshopped. You don't believe it because none of the news sources that you follow are talking about it. Mm-hmm. And the few who are talking about it are downplaying it or pretending like it was just a little. Not it was a non-issue, non-event that it's happened. A twin-engine
0: Cessna plane that just bounced off the twin towers.
1: Yep, that's the same. That's that's the same attitude that you see from liberals. They see the hysteria from the right. They see the anger from the right. And they're led to believe that these people must just be a bunch of bigots because who else would react like this? Like the country is going great. Like, everything is fine. Why are these people acting like the sky is falling?
0: But then conversely, they turn around and you have something like January 6th, which is literally nothing. It's a bunch of boomers going to the Capitol. Most of them literally you know, storming the Capitol. They're walking between the rope lines in the rotunda. Like they're staying within their lines. They're just taking pictures, looking at the statues and the paintings. Ooh, ah, ooh, ah. Again, nobody dies because one protester gets shot. And this happens, and again, it's no different from all the anti cavanaugh protesters who stormed the Capitol and staged a sit-in in multiple offices in the Capitol. But they take that and they make it sound like, oh, this is literally the worst thing since the Civil War.
1: Because that's the way that the media that they consume has framed it. Merrick Garland saw videos, saw the worst of the videos for the worst of the protesters on January 6th. And so a lot – yeah, you can argue that he's being overzealous, that he has a bone to pick with the right. But the reality is he's acting on the information that he has. He doesn't have any information about the storming of the Department of the Interior, and it's no little thing. Fifty-five people arrested. That's a lot. Several officers sent to the hospital. Mm -hmm. How has he not found out about this? Well, I can tell you how he hasn't found out about it. CNN didn't cover it. Nope. Like none of the major news sources covered it. It wasn't in the headlines. They weren't given wall-to-wall coverage. I mean you turned on YouTube for six months after January 6th. You were constantly bombarded with local news clips that YouTube purposely curated – To show the January 6th protesters being arrested, being carried off in handcuffs as a basically humiliation ritual. Mm -hmm. They made sure that every single person in the country who had Internet access knew about the January 6th riot. And they knew the absolute worst events that happened that day.
0: And but, the mainstream media, like what well, was one of them, like CBS or one of them, produced a documentary, a full fledged documentary on mm-hmm. January 6th, less than 24 hours
1: after it happened. Yep, yep. And there won't be a documentary based on this Interior Department storming because these are people who are simply trying to save the planet. They're concerned oh, yeah. no oil, about no fossil pipelines. fuels. They're concerned about you know the, their children's future. So they are moral protesters. A and few never- of them may have gotten out of hand, but then again, Martin Luther King got out of hand and. And he's a hero. Yeah, so, he has a
0: monument here in Washington. Yeah, so these people and never, are
1: just following in the steps of civil disobedience mm-hmm. like you know the, the civil rights protesters. So for that reason, why would you alert the AG to this? It's not an issue.
0: Yeah. Never mind the fact that, you know, if anything, this is even more of a security breach because the Department of Interior is just a few blocks away from the White House. Like <laughs> yeah, exactly, that, that's yeah. even worse. The Capitol is really – National Mall is really long. It's pretty far away from the White House. But then you have Department of Interior is stone's throw from where Joe Biden is, you know, uh, having his nap time in the Lincoln bedroom and <laughs> – and no, but nothing. No, but it's just – and – Again, yeah, a catastrophic breach of security. There absolutely should have been a SWAT presence, anything immediately to stop this. And it didn't happen. They were allowed to just sit in there and sit on that marble floor and sit in their circles like it's, you know, playtime in kindergarten and do their chants and, you know, pipelines bad, oil bad. Yeah, in the midst of a supply chain crisis, by the way, FYI. But I digress. It's, it's just astounding to me. But this is who we're doing with it. Yeah, at the end of the day, I think there is something to what you're saying, Jacob, that, again, I do think this guy is somewhat sinister, but I definitely get the idea that he, like Biden and maybe even like Lloyd Austin and some of these others, they're all just puppets at the end of the day. They're all just figureheads, and the real problems are the people behind the scenes whose names we don't know.
1: Well, one last thing on this topic is if the right would approach this whenever they're dealing with people who are Democrats, people on the left – I'm talking specifically about like educated white people, like college educated white people or Mm -hmm. college educated, assimilated immigrants, second generation Americans. When they're dealing with that particular demographic, they need to understand that most of these people have probably never in their life carried on a conversation with a conservative. They've never met a Trump supporter in their life. They've never encountered. They've never heard the other side of any of this stuff. And they've their information that they've received in the news has been highly curated. So you can't assume that they're just inherently evil. They just – they hate people on the right. They hate the country. They hate America. You've got to understand where they're coming from in their information, and you're not really going to be able to convince them to come over to your side until you can first get them to accept – the factual basis of the information that you believe because they think that everything you've read, everything – they think that everything on Breitbart is a lie. Everything on Fox News is a lie, that everything on any right-wing media is a lie. And if you believe any of that, it,
0: you're, you're just You're deluded. a conspiracy theorist. You're a conspiracy theorist. They so, think that every right-wing media outlet is Alex Jones.
1: Which – and this is why every time the New York Times runs any article that could potentially be used to criticize the left, there's a major, major outcry against mm-hmm. the New York Times by their subscribers because they understand – that these people, college-educated Americans, respect the New York Times, and that if the New York Times deviates from the party line, then that could be used as an excuse to pull people away from that party. So that that's why you have to understand these people; they they don't have all the facts, they don't have all the information.
0: So we talked earlier in this episode, of course, with the NSBA's reversal, that clearly cancel culture absolutely can work for the right, and I'm um, not just the NSBA. We saw it with a handful of others, you know, certainly uh, Ellen DeGeneres, Chrissy Teigen, and others on the left who are also falling victim to cancel culture as well, which is so delicious to see. Something else that Jacob and I actually talked about offline the other day of one way the right could gain political power again, and a really smart strategy that really is presenting itself to the right on a silver platter. They just, the GOP just has to take it, is the ongoing the ongoing supply chain crisis certainly is being caused, in part at least, by workers being forced out of the workforce by vaccine mandates. Few things are better at energizing an otherwise apolitical population or chasing a political portion of the population in the arms of the other side than something that is intrusive and disruptive. And vaccine mandates are both. They are demanding you inject this untested, you know, unproven vaccine twice into your body and rewrite your RNA and possibly have birth defects and get blood clots. Your heart may explode, whatever. And if you don't, you will lose your job. Your kids can't go to school. You won't be able to eat. People aren't already eat anyways, but now the supply chain crisis is getting worse, but you will not be able to function. It's basically almost like cancel culture. You will not be able to live your life if you don't get the jab jab. So this has resulted in pushback from a group of Americans, a larger group that normally would vote for the Democratic Party. And that, of course, is the working class. And this is an interesting article I had to read uh, from uh, about a couple weeks ago from Newsweek. It's by Batya Unger Sargon, a deputy opinion editor at Newsweek, and this was written on October 11th. And the headline reads, quote, working class Americans are standing up for themselves and the left is denouncing them. And this was written, of course, in the aftermath of the big Southwest Airlines fiasco, where over 1,000 Southwest Airlines flights were suddenly canceled or otherwise delayed over the course of just one weekend. And this resulted, of course, in numerous travel delays, all around the country. And initially they couldn't even roll out proper explanations for it. Some try to claim uh, that the flight crews were just late. Others try to claim that there were problems with the Southwest Airlines app. No joke, the uh, friend actually told me that that absolutely is an excuse that was given uh, to him at the airport when he was asking what's the delay. Oh, I think we're having problems with the app. Yeah, like that's totally the cause. And this has been slowly spreading to other transportation related industries. Amtrak, for example, also canceled a number of trains in the Northeastern region. Due to quote unforeseen crew issues end quote according to Amtrak's Twitter, and you're seeing this uh, elsewhere. There was a big uh, strike of General Electric workers in uh, Greenville, South Carolina. Over a hundred workers staged a walkout protest against vaccine mandates. And Southwest Airlines still will not say it yet, but the those who are in the know and the unnamed sources, as it were, are saying it's because Southwest had a vaccine mandate in place that they were going to enforce, and basically say you know if you're unvaccinated, we'll place you on suspended leave. And the workers overwhelmingly rebelled against this. And I think there is actually a lawsuit underway right now with a bunch of workers represented that says, you know, this is a violation of our rights. You cannot force us to do this. And Southwest, of course, has since backed down on that and has delayed, indefinitely delayed the deadline to suspend unvaccinated workers. And what Unger Sargon points out in this article is that this is creating a golden opportunity for the American right to seize on this. And basically, once again, as Trump was trying to trying to do this in 2016 and while he was president, is try to change the GOP into the Workers' Party. Workers, you know, the blue-collar working-class Americans who were once the backbone of the Democratic Party, right? The unions, what have you, who have been left behind as the Democratic Party moves away from working-class politics in support of, you know, minority Olympics politics, you know, social grievances and whatnot. So I wanted to read just a few excerpts here. Quote, You might have expected that the left would be championing what looks like it might be a powerful form of collective action on the part of working class Americans. There was a time some can still recall when the left stood for labor and collective power. Instead, you saw prominent left wing voices denouncing Southwest employees as terrorists and demanding they be put on no fly lists. Many others defended the mass firing of nurses and cops, because this is also happening. There are stories all across the country in New York and other states with manies Nurses and frontline doctors and workers who were once being hailed. Remember, you know, earlier in the pandemic, Jacob, when these people were being celebrated as, you know, mm-hmm. basically you got to treat the nurses and doctors, frontline workers. They were the heroes. News. Remember, you, you got to treat them the same way you would treat the troops. These are heroes. And there's those really garbage, those vomit inducing cartoons of like, All the Marvel Comics superheroes bowing down to nurses as they walk through the (laughs) halls. And and again, these frontline heroes, by the way, were the nurses posting dancing videos on TikTok and Snapchat, by the way, which was just made even more embarrassing. But they were they were heroes to the left. But now you have nurses coming out and saying for medical reasons, for religious reasons or other exemptions, they don't want to get vaccinated and they're getting fired for it. And in fact, at that uh, CNN town hall, Joe Biden just did the other day with Anderson Cooper. He was asked, Cooper asked him, you know, what do you think of, you know, frontline workers and medical professionals, you know, refusing to get vaccinated. Should they be fired? And Biden said, yes, they should be fired. And the audience cheered and applauded for that. Mm -hmm. So now the left has just completely done a 180 on this. So back to the article. And it was Republicans and conservatives, infamous for their laissez-faire free market policies that favor the rich, who were cheering the striking workers and tweeting the hashtag hashtag general strike. This inversion of the politics that ruled the U.S. for much of the 20th century didn't happen overnight. More recently, it's an extension of the COVID lockdown class divide that separated those who could work from the safety of their homes, accountants and bankers and lawyers and project managers and, yes, journalists. Nice bit of self-awareness there. From those whose jobs required, they brave the pandemic to support their families, grocery store workers, delivery men and women, drivers, pilots, small business owners, and, of course, healthcare workers. This was a class divide as much as an economic divide. The college educated versus the working class. And you can see where each side of the political aisle sees its base by which position it took on this divide. Democrats favored lockdowns, while Republicans took the side of those whose work was neither outside the home or eliminated. And again, this is very much a continuation of the Trump phenomenon. It's not over yet. But the problem is that obviously the Republicans faced a setback in 2020, mostly with the voter fraud measures that were put in place. But ultimately, they absolutely can still seize back political power and primarily in the Rust Belt. Again, a lot of these working class you know, Americans are in those crucial states that we needed to win in 2020, that Trump won in 2016. And if we take them back by such a margin that I think this the outrage being caused by these vaccine mandates and the subsequent firings that absolutely can create even more of a landslide that people who will turn right around and go for the anti-lockdown party in by such margins that Gretchen Whitmer and the what uh, uh, Tony Evers I think that's the governor of Wisconsin and Tom Wolf in Pennsylvania they will not see it coming they won't know what hit them until 2025 and after they've already lost re-election next year but I fear, and again, we talked about this earlier, Jacob. Republicans are not seizing upon this opportunity as they should because the Republican leadership, you know, and again, I know Paul Ryan's gone. I know there are, I guess, better examples. The Mitch McConnells, the Kevin McCarthy's, they are still very much in the pockets of Wall Street and the Chamber of Commerce. And until and unless that changes, Ronald McDaniel, the RNC, still for some reason, a member of the Romney family is still in charge of the RNC. Why that is, I will never know. But until these people are swapped out and replaced with people who actually understand the Trump phenomenon and what the base wants, the Republicans will, as it's been said, they never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. And they will miss this possibly last opportunity to make a change for 2022 going into 2024.
1: Well, this actually ties in nicely to our main topic. We're going to talk about immigration because the thing is, this is one issue that unites Republicans and Democrats. That is the leadership of both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. Both parties support massive immigration into this country. And this divide is uh, perfectly played out in what we keep hearing about unemployment benefits. Remember, over the summer, Republicans kept complaining nonstop about the fact that the, uh, the reason why. The unemployment rate was still high, why there were so many people out of the workforce. Businesses couldn't find people to hire was because of these enhanced unemployment benefits that the Biden administration had extended until September 6th. So the, the problem with that is the those enhanced unemployment benefits. Most people, your average person on the street who is just parroting the topic, the talking points of Fox News and these other right wing outlets, is that oh, I, I say right wing outlets, basically corporate corporatist right outlets. It was that the average the the word on the street was that people are getting paid so much money to sit at home that nobody's going out and looking for work. Nobody wants to work. Nobody wants to get a job. But those enhanced unemployment benefits, all it did was add $300 a week on top of whatever the state added. So if you have a state like um like my home state of Alabama, I think it's like uh, 300. I think it's already like 300 a week is the normal unemployment uh, payout for people who are, have been laid off. So you add to that's just $600 a week. That's not a lot of money. I mean, especially if you're trying to support a family, that's not much money to live off of. Most people aren't just going to sit home and take in six, seven hundred a week rather than going out and looking for work. But even if they did, it's not like these unemployment benefits were going to be extended throughout the rest of the year. They was going to be expiring on September 6th. But you still had Republican governors who were ending this unemployment early. And so this that is the enhanced unemployment insurance. They were they were knocking that off early. So. What did keep restaurants and bars from finding workers? Was it, it were they correct that it was the incentive, the, the enhanced federal unemployment benefits, that were keeping people from going out and getting jobs? There's been multiple studies on the states that cut off this enhanced unemployment early, and it didn't really have much of an effect at all on employment. In fact, it might have gone up maybe 0.2 percent, 0.5 percent in some states. And we know that these enhanced unemployment benefits did not really have much of an effect because they ended on September 6th, and restaurants and retail are still having trouble finding people. In fact, you could argue that restaurants are actually having more trouble today trying to find people to work for them than they were back in May and June. Rick Scott, Florida Senator Rick Scott, he said, quote, we've given people so much money, they're not working. So they're not going out and getting jobs now that the unemployment benefits have run out. But now that... People still aren't getting jobs like they were expected to now that the unemployment benefits have run out. The Republicans are having to find another another avenue because their, their whole theory was that has been completely debunked. So Rick Scott, Florida Senator Rick Scott said, quote, we've given people so much money they're not working. I mean look at how much money people put away because they got so much extra money, end quote. So you got all these Americans who are overleveraged, who are in debt and credit card debt over their eyeballs or in student loan debt over their eyeballs. They can't afford anything. They don't have they don't even have a thousand dollars in the bank. The government throws them a few crumbs during this pandemic that made them get laid off. And now Rick Scott is complaining that they saved up that money. I mean, isn't this in a healthy society? Shouldn't we want people to save money? Shouldn't we encourage people to save money?
0: Ideally, thats I'm pretty sure that's the core of fiscal responsibility.
1: But not, not Rick Scott. Rick Scott is upset that you've got all these people who were collecting unemployment and they've saved their money rather than blowing their money at the mall. They've been responsible, and now they've got a little bit of savings up. So rather than having to go immediately go take that minimum wage fast food job that they got laid off for, they now have more options. They can now – you know, put in four or five applications. They can now apply for the Home Depot. They can apply for something that's going to pay them twelve dollars an hour instead of seven twenty-five an hour. But that doesn't sit well with people like Rick Scott. They want these people to be. It really does give a window into how how these politicians, a lot of these uh, these legacy Republican politicians, view the American people, including their own voters. They expect people to be living paycheck to paycheck because in their minds. You should be dependent on your on their your employer. Remember that clip we paid we played from the fill in for the Mark Levin show? Yes. Remember he said that why protest
0: sti- against your employer's vaccine mandates when that's just gonna hurt their business. But
1: he said people shouldn't be reliant on the government for health care. They should be reliant on their employer for this stuff, for their wages and their health care. These people want, these politicians, people in the corporatist right, they literally want people living paycheck to paycheck. So that way they're forced to go get the first job that's offered to them. So that way the donors, because that's the thing, these Republicans, they were hearing from these restaurant owners who are Republican donors that they can't get workers. And they're basically beating down Republican politicians' doors saying, hey, give us our workers. We need our wage slaves back. Our wage slaves aren't coming back because they're sitting at home collecting an extra 300 a week. They need to come back and be happy with our $8 an hour, $9 an hour job that we're offering them. And so Rick Scott is upset that these people have been saving up, so now they can kind of you know, play the field. They can look for something a little bit better, and these restaurant owners aren't getting their wage slaves back. So there was a study conducted by researchers at Columbia University, Harvard University, and the University of Massachusetts Amherst that found that for every eight people – who lost benefits early? These are in the Republican-led states, where for every eight people who lost their enhanced unemployment benefits early, one found a job by August. So Republicans took away, and I mean, think about how this is going to play politically. You've got people who are struggling financially, and the government, the federal government, is throwing them an extra, uh, extra few crumbs. You know, throwing them 300 extra crumbs every week on top of the measly unemployment insurance that their state offers, which sometimes is like 250 a week. So they're making five fifty a week, 600 a week, and the Republican governor decides, nope, you're making too much money. We're going to take that $300 away from you. We're just going to give – because the federal government is giving them this money. That's the thing. The state doesn't have to contribute anything more. It's not like Medicaid where they're telling the state, hey, we'll contribute 9, $0.90 cents if you'll contribute $0.10 cents of enhanced unemployment. This is all coming from the federal government, just free money. That the federal government is giving these states and the state government, these Republican governors are like, nope, no, thank you. We want our people to go back to work. So we don't want to accept this. So these people get their un- their extra unemployment checks cut by these Republican governors. And for every eight of them who ends up losing that three extra 300, only one of them is able to find a job by August. Um, That's not that that doesn't exactly play very well to the Trump base. I mean, you that's can not imagine
0: sustainable. Yeah, yeah that's-
1: you, you can imagine how a lot of these these ex-Democrats who decided to vote for Trump how they probably feel about the Republican party. Now that that's happened
0: again, it, as has been said, Trump won despite the Republican party, not because of it. You know, they were lucky to have him as their nominee because any other Republican would be touting this line. You know, you'd have this, this increasingly out of touch sentiment, like, you know, Christy Nohm, who tweeted that uh, cause again, we love dunking on Christy Noem. She said, Oh, you know, if we believe in the free market, if you don't like your employer's vaccine mandate, you can always quit and go find an employer who won't force you to get the vaccine. Mm-hmm. She actually tweeted that thinking that yeah. this is what people want to hear. Well, this is this
1: is their mentality because most of these politicians have never actually had to work for a living like they've never many of them have never actually worked in a restaurant in their life they've never dug a ditch they've never hammered a nail unless it was in their own home in their own multi-million dollar home so they don't understand what it's like to be an 18 year old a 20 year old especially a 20 year old college student and having to choose between multiple minimum wage jobs with bosses that are all going to treat you like crap
0: and so, so all this keep in mind saddled with student debt as well
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And for for a job, that's really not going to pay much once you do get the degree. But it turns out something else is happening. This is from Breitbart by Neil Monroe. It says, so restaurant executives were saying that less migration forces more respect for American employees. He writes, the shortage of migrants and willing Americans is forcing food industry CEOs to treat their employees with more respect and dignity, says personnel uh, chief at one of the nation's largest restaurant firms. Quote, you've got to be receptive to feedback, said Rick Badgley at Brinker International, who owns the Chili's Maggiano's Little Italy re- restaurant chains. He, this is what he told an industry conference on October 13th. He continued, quote, the workforce that we're dealing with now has high standards, high demands, and high expectations. Make sure you're investing the time to listen, listen to your team members, that they um, they have invaluable feedback for you. Employees have a very distinct and really easy to follow motiv- motivators, said Badgley. He told attendees at the conference, Uh, which was organized by food delivery firm DoorDash. Quote, what we've experienced at the macro level down to the restaurant level is that they mostly want flexibility with what has happened and with what we call now the gig economy, the side hustle. And compensation is important to everybody. What we found through surveys and talking to our frontline employees is that we need to align their compensation with their monthly bills. End quote. Many food industry companies hired workers under at-will contracts, where the employees do not know how many hours they will be scheduled to work each day. And this is another thing that a lot of people don't understand about restaurant workers is they get hired and they may get 35 hours a week, which will cover rent, or they may it turn, may turn out that their boss wants, that their manager wants to play favorites and likes another employee and decides to cut their hours to 20 hours a week. I've been in that boat before. They can't pay rent on 20 hours a week. So now they've got to go get a second job and now they've got to work two minimum wage jobs and- then those schedules conflict. They might end up getting fired from one or they happen to end their shift at 4 a.m. At one, they have to get up to go work at the second job at 6 a.m. in the morning. So they've got 38 minutes of sleep. I've been in that boat before. And if they happen to sleep through their alarms because they've been working through the night, then they get fired at the second job and they got to go find another second job. This is the life of your typical low-paid restaurant employees in the United States. Quote, traditionally in restaurants, Blasley says, quote, traditionally in restaurants, it was Hey, this is the job. If you want these hours, great. If not, we'll find somebody else, end quote. Christopher Floyd, owner of a food industry recruitment firm, told the New York Times, quote, now employers have to say you have the qualities we're looking for. Maybe we can work out a more flexible schedule that works for you. Badgley, um, Badgley's recommendation comes amid widespread dissatisfaction by American restaurant workers, according to a September report by Black Box Intelligence, a firm that tracks the restaurant sector. It writes, quote, most people agree higher pay is the main reason employees are leaving for other industries. Another dr- uh, driver is a need for another driver is a need for a more consistent schedule and income. Fifty-one percent of workers chose to work in restaurants because of flexibility, but beyond that flexibility, employees want some sense of consistency in terms of what their schedule might be and their income as a result. End quote. Quote, "We don't like to say this much, but it has long been the practice of many restaurants to hire staff as inexpensively as possible and provide them with the fewest benefits that they can, often by recruiting their hours." often by restricting their hours so they don't qualify as full-time employees, end quote. This is what Brett Thorne, senior food and beverage editor for Nation's Restaurant News said. Now, this is normal. This is capitalism. This is just the way it works. An employer wants to maximize the profit, wants to pay his employees the least amount possible. The employees want to maximize their profit by working the least amount possible for the most money possible. This is the way the free market is supposed to work. The difference, though, is where, where a wrench is thrown into this is with immigration. Legal and illegal migrant labor is commonplace and beneficial for business, partly because it minimizes the emergence of a wage-boosting tight labor market among American restaurant workers or among their white-collar peers. In August, for example, federal officials charged 19 co-defendants for allegedly running an organized criminal enterprise from July 2003 to August 2021 that smuggled Mexican, Guatemalan, and El Salvadoran nationals who were not authorized to live or work in the United States. The ring supplied many workers to at least 45 restaurants across the Midwest. Nonetheless, the poor wages and working conditions are a step up for many poor migrants, partly because they know that U.S. jobs may allow them to successfully launch their children into the United States. And this is what you got to understand when it comes to the uh, the intersection of migration and restaurant workers or retail workers. These people are coming from areas where they're making 2 $3 an hour. They're if coming, even that. Yeah, if even that. They're coming into this, this country where they literally sell themselves into indentured servant and mm-hmm. in, 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 to indentured servitude they're basically a new slave class at this point it, that's exactly what they are they when Virginia and other colonies were founded most of the immigrants were poor people in London who had were homeless and they paid their fare under the under the understanding that they were going to be a slave for five years they would have no rights they would be they would literally be the property of their owner for five years but that would allow them to be able to live in the new world. Once they were freed after five years, they would then be given a small parcel of land. They would be able to farm. They'd have a better life eventually than they did back home in London. And this is the way it is for a lot of these Central American migrants. They understand their life for the first few years in America, maybe for the first 10 years, is going to be a living hell. They're going to have to pay off the coyotes. They're going to have to pay off the cartels. They're going to have to sell themselves into indentured servitude so that they'll have a better life in the future. American workers cannot compete with that. American workers in restaurants were already underpaid before the waves of migrants came into the country, and all this did was force, was allow the restaurants to continue to lower wages, continue to lower benefits, to treat their employees terribly. The worst-treated employees in this country are probably restaurant workers, and what the pandemic did, because it shut down the restaurants and it mm-hmm. forced these restaurants to lay off their workers – is it allowed these workers to be able to get some breathing room because a lot of these workers for years and years they've been living paycheck to paycheck shift to shift They they go to bed at 2 a.m they wake up at 8 a.m sometimes i, I mean there was one time i worked a literally a 13-hour shift because i stayed for somebody who called out and this is just the way it goes if you want to have any chance of maybe getting a, a little 50 cent raise then when someone says hey so-and-so called out of their eight-hour shift do you want to take it you say yes this is just the way it goes because and if,
0: and if you're lucky, you may also get some nice tips over the course of the day. But again, well, that's,
1: that's only if you're a server. If you're working in the kitchen, then oh, uh, yeah, yeah, you then, don't you don't you're get screwed. anything. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're yeah. just you're just going to have to be satisfied on that seven twenty five an hour salary. But because of the pandemic, a lot of these workers ended up being able to go home. They get they they ended up being able to go home. They were able to take some breathing space, spend some time with their family that they never saw because they were working all the time and they were able to get a little bit of money from the government it kept them afloat but it also allowed them to survey their options
0: mm-hmm.
4: and many
1: of these res- these workers and some studies show that as many as 50% of restaurant workers before the pandemic are not going back to working in the restaurant industry yeah.
0: the fact of the matter is that the economy is changed permanently people are talking about the fact that of course as a result of the pandemic people are doing lots of remote work now and some companies that are able to do it are saying you know what, well, yeah let's keep it with remote you know there's there's real no reason to have you know to keep the lights on in the office when people can just work remotely and there's Lots of businesses that are you know, shifting more so to delivery, and again, not all of them, but some of them are. That This is the beginning. We are undergoing the, the growing pains, if you will, of a, an economy that is systematically fundamentally changing right before our very eyes. It's not going to go entirely back to the way it was before.
1: In the Food & Wide magazine, Jane Bredlinger is a former restaurant employee who gives her perspective on it. She writes – it's not unemployment benefits that are stopping workers like me from returning to restaurants. In March 2020, most of us were cast off like yesterday's trash. In the days following the recent expiration of enhanced federal unemployment benefits, many people are looking at restaurant workers and wondering, will they or won't they? According to the National Restaurant Association's State of the Industry midyear Update, three out of every four restaurant owners now report employee hiring and retention as their greatest difficulty, and many have loudly blamed unemployment benefits as the reason workers aren't returned to restaurants. This summer, New York Post reporters wrote, quote, here's a tip. Wait staff make more staying home, blaming President Biden for New York City's shortage of food service workers who are supposedly, quote, raking in cash from unemployment checks. Yeah, that extra $300 is really going to go a long way in New York City where rent is like yeah. $2,000 a month. <laughs> quote, a lot of people are like, well, I'm going to just enjoy the summer, spend time with family, keep collecting, and then go back to work. In September, Jersey City restaurant owner Ava Johannes Doter told Al Jazeera, Quote, stimulus and unemployment are killing the workforce, McDonald's franchisee Lamented, to business insider. Now that unemployment has dried up, will those employees who've been holding out return to their jobs? The question misses the point entirely. As a longtime restaurant worker until the pandemic struck, I know plenty of former colleagues who've already returned to the industry. For those who haven't, including me, it's not un- unemployment benefits that are giving us pause. It's the feeling of being well over it. In my job as a cook pre COVID, I was drowning. A high-stress job with long hours and no free time was like dry kindling for my anxiety and depression, and my performance worsened. Thrown into a competitive survival of the fittest culture that I was in no way equipped to handle, I often felt like everyone was standing by just watching me fail, and I completely relate. That's exactly what working in a restaurant, in the the restaurant industry, especially where there's an oversupply of labor, is like. I'd, I'd relocated for the job, and quitting seemed like the ultimate failure. I felt paralyzed. Then the pandemic hit, and despite the confusion, bewilderment, and fear that came with the onset of a pandemic and the collapse of an industry for the first time in months, I felt like I could breathe. I always knew that working in a restaurant would be difficult, and I thought I could meet the challenge. I relished the long nights on the line, the burns that lined my forearms like tiger stripes, my aching feet, and sore back. I'd foregone family holidays and fell out with friends who worked nine to five jobs. And just a and just a personal anecdotal evidence um, mm-hmm. of this. And, uh this was in twenty. 2013. Yeah, 2013. This is Christmas 2013. I was working at Chick-fil-A and I requested Christmas off, Christmas Eve off cuz mm. they 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 work, they're open on Christmas Eve. You know, they don't even give their employees Christmas Eve off. Wow. So, I requested But they get
0: sun, they can give Sundays off, but they, give they, Sundays they can't off, give Christmas. Wow. But
1: they can't give Christmas Eve off. They're only closed on Christmas Day. So, I requested Christmas Eve off. All I needed was one day. I didn't request a week, half a week. I just needed one day so I could go visit my family for Christmas and be right back on December 26th. I actually requested December 26th off as well, but I requested way in advance, like two months in advance. Mm-hmm. And the, the response I got from the assistant manager was, huh, good luck. That was that was it. Wow. And sure enough, I'm scheduled on December 26th. I was um, scheduled, actually, I was scheduled on December 24th and, and December 26th.
0: So you literally... So I
1: literally had to leave like December 20th, on Christmas Eve at 10 p.m., drive, arrive at... This had been at like four a.m. to my parents, oh my. and then Christmas Day I had to leave. I left at two a.m. in the morning on December 26th, and I arrived at literally seven fifty-nine walked in the you door and clocked in at 7 – drove straight to work, clocked in at 7.59. And because my phone had died, I didn't know uh, what time it was. The clock on my car didn't work. It was an old 94 Toyota Camry. Nice. And um, so I didn't know what time it was, and I, I figured – because the way they operated is if you clocked in if, – if, you, if your shift started at 8 o'clock and you clocked in at 8 o'clock, you would get written up. Like no joke. Seriously, you would get written up for showing up on time. For showing up on time. If you didn't clock in early, you were considered late. If you clocked in at eight o'clock and you were supposed to start at eight o'clock, you would get written up. And you know they they didn't take excuses. So if I told them, well look, I couldn't get off. My parents live five and a half hours away. I drove all night, you know, just to get here. If I had clocked in at eight o'clock, I would have been written up because. You know, for spending Christmas with my family, so I clocked in at seven fifty nine just by sheer luck. But so I completely relate to what they mean by you know everyone's looking for an excuse yeah. to fire you because they've got and this is what they told me whenever I applied at Chick Fil A, they're like, hey, we've got five hundred applications in there. Well, why should we
0: hire? People you? are clamoring to and, work at Chick Fil A. And yeah. This is
1: the because in an area like that where there just isn't there are very few factories around who hire no skilled or low skilled workers. Fast food is pretty much all there is. So, yeah.
0: That story is just making me even more happy. That is even happier that I personally have been boycotting Chick-fil-A for a while now. (laughs) Like I was already after the CEO went woke last year due to the BLM stuff. But now it's it's terrible. uh, Apparently, uh, almost 10 years later, they were they were not they were still very even back when they were politically based. They were still very like cruel to their workers, which is just unacceptable as far as I'm concerned.
1: But this lady goes on. Where's the glory in high wages and paid time off anyway? All of this I accepted without question, but I never imagined the toll of a toxic workplace on my mental health. And now I wonder if life really has to be this way. This summer, I spoke briefly briefly with a San Francisco sommelier about his COVID-19 experience. I don't know what that is. When he lost his job, he moved west from Denver. His former restaurant had dropped its staff like yesterday's trash. And only just now they're calling us, begging us to come back, he said, but he'd already moved on. According to a report released by a job list in July, 38% of former restaurant workers' surveys stated that they would no longer be seeking work in the hospitality industry that fired them. I don't think this should come as a shock. In March 2020, most of us were cast off as overhead. A colleague told me about how uncommunic- uh, uncommunicative her former workplace was. She writes, It seems like two things are happening. Either employees aren't returning or they're coming back with a greater sense of worth. Quote, Every restaurant in the city is hiring, so it feels like a unique opportunity to learn something new. One restaurant worker told me of her current job search in New York City, quote, I guess with restaurants trying to rebuild, they're promising the moon. I'm not sure how they'll be able to sustain labor costs long term, but I'm going to enjoy it while it lasts, end quote. She says she's heard of pastry shops offering, um, she's heard of pastry cook positions offering $22 an hour to start. Now, this is the enhanced, this is the new, the new normal, but this is New York City. $22 an hour in New York City is not much money. That's not.
0: That's a terrifying. That's actually
1: a yeah exactly. That's That's a terrifying idea to make twenty two dollars an hour in New York City. I'm not
0: sure if that's more of an indictment of the inflation going on right now, or just how bad New York is, or maybe both.
1: But this is what they're offering now. They were offering less before the pandemic. This is why. This is because they're desperate for employees. Now they're having to raise it to twenty two dollars an hour.
0: Oh yeah, like Amazon, like Walmart, others are mm-hmm. raising their raising to fifteen dollars because they're desperate to go. Yeah, you're seeing. I see average, ads like that on YouTube. People are advertising. oh, eh, we're getting fifteen dollars an hour. Come work for us, which
1: is fine in in Kansas, but in New York City, fifteen dollars an hour just twenty even twenty two dollars an hour just isn't that much. You, you you literally cannot afford an apartment that is not government subsidized on that kind of salary. Like you have to live in government housing if you make twenty two dollars an hour. She writes, this is a good thing. When workers recognize their value and have the power to make demands, change happens. In this equation, it's the workplaces that have to get competitive. Will restaurants get the hint that living wages, health insurance, and vacation pay aren't luxuries? Will restaurant guests understand that their meal might cost more in order to provide a proper life for the person making it? Will all the people doing the real work, the dishwashers, the porters, the prep cooks, the line cooks, the busters, the servers, with little to no bargaining power, finally be recognized as the people who run this industry instead of the chiefs and owners that ride on their shoulders? And- the reality is this this will continue as long as immigration does not continue to flow the way it is. As soon as if, – if immigration continues to flow the way it is, you're going to see these restaurants be able to afford to go back to the way things were before the pandemic because what – here's the way the free market works. I mean it you have supply and demand of labor. It, mm-hmm. Supply and demand of labor works the same way as supply and demand of goods and services. A restaurant owner wants to make money. That's why he created his restaurant. A restaurant worker does not have any capital and needs to exchange his labor for wages in order to pay rent in order to buy food. That restaurant owner does not have any monetary incentive to pay his workers a living wage If he has millions and millions of third world people coming in from other countries where the average wage is 50 cents an hour, Mm -hmm. why does he need to pay a worker $22 an hour when he can pay a Guatemalan $3, $8 an hour? Yeah. It just—it doesn't make any sense. There's no logic to, you know, the, the idea that restaurant owners or CEOs are going to be moral. That no, there is no morality in the in market.
0: It's all about the money.
1: That's just the way it is. That's the and that's the way it's supposed to be. You can't force people to be more, you know, pay their workers above and beyond what they need to. And it just is, you can't
0: force individual business owners to be nationalists. They're going to put you know, the global economy over the right. well-being of they're, their fellow citizens every gonna, single day of the week and twice on Sunday.
1: They're going to put their own profits above everything, and if you want to help American workers, the best way to help American workers is to seal that border shut.
0: Mm-hmm. Keep Compl- the
1: Hondurans out, keep the Salvadorans out, keep the Guatemalans
0: out. Keep the Haitians out.
1: yeah especially keep the Haitians out because they're they're worse off than the
0: Central Americans. They're for- like literally the poorest country in the entire world. yeah,
1: they, they literally are yeah you can't I mean but the thing is with these jobs anyone can be trained to do them. You can train anyone from anywhere in the world to do these jobs for nine, ten dollars an hour when Americans who would be making twenty dollars an hour doing these jobs either have to just accept that lower standard of living. They have to basically commit fraud and claim disability, which is what a lot of Americans have done Mm -hmm. over the past few decades, or they go homeless. That's essentially what they're faced with, and that's why you're seeing – that's why the homeless population in, in cities is so high, especially out west. You've got all of these poor workers coming in from other countries who are willing to work for basically subsistence wages because they're making more money doing that than they would be in their home country. And Americans who simply can't afford to live on that are left to live on the streets. So if people actually care about workers, the best thing that they can do is advocate for sealing that border shut. When they do that, restaurants are going to be forced to hire Americans. They're going to be forced to pay Americans more. And yes, they're going to have to raise the prices. And yes, Americans are just going to have to get accustomed to paying what they should pay for food. Americans have been spoiled when it comes to fast food, when it comes to restaurants. If you go to Europe, you're not going to eat a Big Mac for – $3. $3. No. You just, you're going to pay two dollars for
0: that In thing. Europe, you don't get free refills. I learned that when I went to Scotland and Ireland with my family several years back. You have to pay for every single time you refill your drink. But see, you got Americans, especially a lot of
1: Republicans, that they they look at what's going on in the country, and they're complaining about the rising cost of, say, fast food at their Big Mac or whatever, and they're not realizing one of the things that's driving inflation is the fact that workers are not willing to be treated as peons anymore. Mm-hmm. You know they're they're weighing their options. They're finding better paying jobs. They've saved up their money, and the, a lot of them have invested that money. They're doing other things. They're doing they're getting involved in the gig economy. So, when wages rise like they should be on when a, on a normal market level, when you don't have massive numbers of immigrants coming in and filling these jobs, then Americans would have to pay more, just like they do in Europe. And uh, so so yeah, this is this is one of the reasons why restaurants can't find workers is because for decades they were so used. To treating their workers like garbage, treating them – just basically treating them as uh, as expendable, and uh, workers are realizing that they don't have to settle for that anymore, especially – I mean at least now that they've uh, managed to save up a little bit of their – their unemployment insurance, they've saved up a little bit of their stimulus. They've been working odd jobs. Many of them have been working the gig economy. So um and many of them have just found better paying jobs overall that don't Mm -hmm. you know outside the restaurant industry. But but yeah, if you want if you want the standard of living to rise, if you want wealth inequality to shrink, if you want Americans to be more um, you know more involved and this is one, another thing a lot of people a lot of uh, the rank and file republican voters they're not able to do anything they're not able to get involved in politics because they're living hand to mouth they're living paycheck to paycheck if you want more republican rank and file voters the vast proletariat to get involved politically and overturn what progressivism has done to this country you're going to have to see your their standard of living is going to have to rise because You know, survival comes first. Politics comes second. If you want if you really want them to get involved, you've got to make sure that they can provide for the family and have a living wage. And the best way to do that is to cut off immigration and force restaurants to pay twenty dollars an hour to pay twenty five dollars an hour. And look, and this is this is something that Republican politicians just don't want to accept.
0: Exactly. Again, we talked about this back with uh, the Southwest Airlines boycott and the uh, or the Southwest Airlines worker strike and how Republican leaders like McConnell and McCarthy and the others are and Ron McDaniel are still funded by big mm-hmm. interests by Wall Street, the Chamber of Commerce. And that brings me to one more thing, one last one I had to make on this same note uh, before we close out this episode. Of course, those lovely patriotic American nationalists at the Cato Institute the libertarian think tank of all libertarian think tanks. They released a report obviously bemoaning this fact. They're absolutely in horror at this statement, at this assertion they have determined through the study. President Donald Trump's policies in the year 2020 stopped the inflow of roughly 1.2 million foreign workers According to a report by the business funded Cato Institute, that's how Breitbart's Neil Monroe describes them. Uh, This is a tweet from Cato author David Beer on that study, quote, it's a staggering cumulative reduction since March of 2020. It's undoubtedly contributing to America's historic labor shortage, quote. He then goes on to say that he's the author of the report and he concludes with, quote, The Biden administration should open the borders now to allow more workers to fill open positions and increase economic growth. Thank you, David Beer. Thank you, Cato Institute. Yes, that's exactly what we need. But of course, again, these these are libertarians. It's a big business funded think tank in Washington, D.C. that's notorious for being hardcore pro open borders and pro immigration because, oh, it'll increase the GDP by a couple point point five percent if we do this. So. And again, this is what I mean. If we do not change the mentality of the conservative establishment leadership, and I know these are libertarians, they're technically not conservatives, but there's a lot of other people in this think tank industry in D.C. who make policy, who speak to the lawmakers, who write the laws, who think this way. And until and unless we get rid of this chamber of commerce, GOP, this Wall Street Republican, this Wall Street conservative mindset— Nothing will change. And it is going to get a lot worse before it gets better. And the Republicans will, of course, celebrate that they'll enjoy and appreciate, I should say, the fact that it is going to get worse because this could very well benefit them in the midterms. But they're not going to address the root causes that are continuing to prolong it in the first place until and unless they fight to shut the border and get big business interests out But unfortunately, that is all the time we have left for this episode of The Right Take. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. As always, be sure to follow all of our latest content and posts at our website, righttakepodcast.com. Follow all of our latest social media at righttakepodcast.com slash subscriber. You can also find the full list of podcast platforms where we are available. And if you guys are feeling so generous, righttakepodcast.com slash support. We'll talk to you next week, guys.